Hey, before we get started, I want to remind you that Truce is listener-supported. If you want to be a part of this one-of-a-kind show that asks big questions in an approachable way, become a patron. For just $5 a month, you can help me tell big stories like this upcoming season on the history of fundamentalism. And you'll get access to bonus materials. That's all at patreon.com slash trucepodcast. That's patreon.com slash trucepodcast. Before we get started, this episode can stand on its own, but will probably make more sense if you go back two episodes. All right, so... Is there anything that you're afraid of? Yes, I have dreams of being in a car and not being able to reach the brake pedal. <laughs> Are you, do you normally have short dreams? Yes. <laughs> Actually, I drove a car where the seat was permanently pushed too far back, and you need a dictionary to, and a pillow to get my feet to touch the pedals, and I had this constant feeling of not quite being able to, you know, press the brakes if I needed to. I am definitely afraid of clowns. Clowns, yes. From when I was a little kid, I would cry whenever they came down the parade. And the Shriners, you know, they drive around those little cars. That's, yeah. Does anybody else agree? Are clowns scary? Am I the only one? (laughs) Shriners. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Every parade. Okay. I'm not alone. I guess it's a fear. I'm afraid of dark water, like swimming in black water where I can't see the bottom or see what's in the water or anything. If I'm in the water and the sun's out and I can see, it's fine. But if it's black, I don't like it. Is there anything you're afraid of? Oh, well, I'm not, I'm also scared of water, but all water. (laughs) Wait, that must make showering really (laughs) Okay, okay, just bodies of water. And I'm also very scared of ledges, like cliffs, like standing on the edge of a ledge yeah. or a cliff. Yeah. Well, then don't do it. Well, yeah. No, so she isn't. She wanted a clown birthday. My own daughter wanted a clown birthday when she was four. So we gave it to her. But I was like, I've got, I've got to face my fear. So there we go. Um, leeches terrify me. Leeches. I've, I've had two on my leg that was, you know, burying into it, and that was terrifying, so. I think I'm honestly really scared of interviews. And yet you've been on this show so many times. (laughs) Facing my fears. It turns out that we're afraid of a lot of things. For some of us, it's spiders. For others, it's clowns. But there is a certain kind of fear that crops up every few years in Christian circles. One that isn't so funny. The fear that we're dying out, becoming extinct. Something like only half of kids born into Southern Baptist families stay Southern Baptist. Not only are young people walking away from the faith of their parents, but other religions are gaining on us. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin. And this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. 
these stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith. Because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. All right, so let's have some fun with numbers. In April 2015, the Pew Research Center released a report about religion and world populations. There were some interesting ideas there. Here they are, read by a friend of mine. Worldwide, the number of atheists is shrinking. Surprising news to some of us. I thought atheism was on the rise. Well, it turns out it's not, if you think globally. However, it is going up in countries like the United States and France. By 2050, two out of every five Christians will live in sub-Saharan Africa. Africa is kind of rocking it right now when it comes to spiritual growth, despite hardships in several countries. Disease, wars, still, Christianity is on the rise. In 2010, Christians were 31.4% of the world population. In 2050, they'll also be at 31.4%. So, not growing, but certainly not shrinking worldwide, despite our drops in the United States and France. Islam, however, will go from being at 23.2% to 29.7%. So, Christianity is projected to stay about the same, but Islam is growing in total share of the world population. As we've been discussing for the last several episodes, Christians are pretty uneasy when it comes to Islam. But you know, it's just one statistic, so no need to worry just yet. Muslims are expected to tie, or at least come close to tying, the world Christian population by the middle of the century. Okay, wow. Well, that is a tough statistic. This is where a lot of Christians start to panic. Muslims are expected to match us in sheer numbers by the middle of this century. The rise isn't just through evangelism, though. It's because Muslims are having more babies than us. According to another study by the Pew Research Center from 2017, Worldwide, Christians are having an average of 2.7 kids per couple, while Muslims are averaging 2.9. That 0.2 difference adds up over time, over the world population. Muslims are kicking our backsides. Sure, religious people in general have a lot more babies than non-religious, but still, point two. And where are most of the gains being made in Islam? Sub-Saharan Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa. And they are leading in the U.S. by about half a kid per couple. When statistics like this come out, we Christians start to panic. We get nervous. Going back before the Crusades, a thousand years ago, Christians and Muslims have just not gotten along. So, how do we deal with this? How do we take this fear and turn it into something constructive? Some would say, we make babies. We make as many babies as we can. More kids means more people in church. It means we can compete on the world stage, boost up the numbers a bit. Pastors get up in the pulpit and encourage, I mean tactfully encourage, young people to have more children. We want to see the Sunday school rooms overflowing, nursing mothers in every corner of the building. Mom. 
in order to boost our numbers as they compare to the numbers of Muslims, some of us look around in scripture to make some kind of mandate. We do this quite often, as it turns out. We come up with an idea, then go looking for justification in the Bible. And the main passage that gets pulled out of scripture, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. It's a phrase that occurs several times in the Bible. It shows up mostly when the earth needs to be repopulated. Twice in just the first few chapters of Genesis. Once when God tells the creatures of the earth to make some babies, and then once with Adam and Eve, when, you know, they were the only two people on earth. Solution? Be fruitful and multiply. And he's not just suggesting it, it's said as a command. Get out there, you two, and have some fun. It also pops up with Noah and his family after the flood, when they are the only people on earth. The solution, again, is a command. Be fruitful and multiply. Then comes Jacob, the guy who was renamed Israel by God. From his descendants will come the race of the Jews. And what did God tell him? You got it. Be fruitful and multiply. In Jeremiah 23, it's said as a promise that God will bring his people back to their land and they will, you know, be fruitful and multiply. Except here, it's not a command like it is in other passages. God's not saying, go and do this thing. Here, it's a promise. The Jewish people will thrive again. Here's the thing, there's not much explanation there. It's a quick command and that's it, leaving a lot of questions. Okay, so we're supposed to have kids, but how many? How often? At what ages? What about couples that can't When conceive? is it time to adopt? Can we use birth control? If so, what kind? As with many a phrase that's open to interpretation, the internet has risen to the challenge of filling in the gaps. So guys, a couple things here. This is celebrity Christians Dale and Veronica Partridge in an online video. You know, if you're asking the question, when should we have kids? When, when's the best time to start to have kids? I mean, from the Bible's perspective, it would be, uh, I don't know, as soon as you get married, your wedding night. <laughs> I mean, do you have to in your wedding night? You don't have to, but that, that's when you should be definitely be thinking about children. It's Okay, hold up. Does the Bible say when we're supposed to have kids? No. Yet, ideas like this persist. To their credit, the Partridges do go on to say that there is no right time and there may be special circumstances for some couples. So there's a lot of pressure on married people in this video. Like I said, we take something we want or like and try to find a verse to back it up. Listen closely and see if you can pick it out. Um, and, you know, the Bible implies that if you're not ready to multiply, then you're not ready to be inside of a marriage. That, that's what it is, is if you're not ready to multiply, you're not ready to be inside of a marriage. If you actually have to prevent what naturally occurs between a, a husband and a wife when they become one flesh, when they consummate the marriage, be fruitful and multiply when the two become one. If you actually have to naturally prevent that from occurring, you have to ask yourself, is it God's will or is it our will? Did you hear it? You guessed it. Be fruitful and multiply. Again, the problem is there are a variety of interpretations around this phrase. First, Maybe you noticed all of the uses of the phrase were in the Old Testament. That may seem insignificant, but that means that the command to Adam and Eve, Noah and his family, all the others, occurred during an Old Covenant. In other words, under laws that we may no longer be under. 
depending on your theology. Think about the other commandments in the Old Testament. We're no longer required to live in tents once a year or sacrifice in Jerusalem, and we don't have to abstain from pork products like the Jews did in the Old Testament. So some would say that we are no longer held to the restrictions of the Old Covenant, like be fruitful and multiply. That's the first idea, that the law no longer applies. After all, we don't exactly need to repopulate the earth. Let's set that interpretation aside and look at a second one. This one's pretty popular these days, and it goes something like this. God commanded Adam and Eve to multiply, and since that may not have occurred as part of a covenant, depending on how you count covenants in the Old Testament, it's messy, it still applies because it was meant for all of humanity from the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply is a command for all of God's people. Well, that's what this interpretation says. These are the two main camps. Either it's part of a covenant that no longer applies, or it's not a part of a covenant, and therefore it does apply. So, a lot of churches put pressure on married people to have babies. And there's pressure on single people to get married. And why? To make more babies. Bringing us back to that pesky data about birth rates. There is an awful lot of talk in Christian circles around having children. Numbers like these kind of scare us. It's possible, just maybe possible, that we could be thinking about this a different way. Let's say that my neighbors are Muslim and they have a baby. The number of Muslims in the world just went up by one. And there it is, by one interpretation, it's now my duty to have a baby too, to keep things kind of evened out. Well, of course, they could just have another baby. Then I'd have to have another baby myself. Maybe they have twins, and now my family has to add two new babies from somewhere just to keep up. Because I think I've got to keep the number of Christians in the world greater than the number of Muslims in the world. What we end up with is a vast number of Christians and a vast number of Muslims. If our goal is merely to have as many children as we can to stay at least even with them, then we're not impacting Muslims. We're just outpopulating them. This may sound crazy, what if, instead of trying to have more babies than my Muslim neighbors, I just go and share the gospel with them? Then, by the grace of God, maybe they'll come to the Lord, and not only do I not have to have more babies than them, but the number of Christians goes up as the same amount of Muslims goes down. Mathematically, it just makes more sense to simply share the gospel. And I'll go through a lot fewer wet wipes that way. For the rest of the episode, we're going to be talking about evangelism in terms of numbers, which can seem kind of cold and maybe a little rigid. Obviously, we're talking about people's souls here. Evangelism should be about our love for God and the desire to let other people in on that. Keep that in mind as we talk about numbers. So let's say that I go out and share the gospel until someone follows Christ. Hey pal, do you know where you're going to go when you die? Maybe I only do this once a year. Sharing my faith with a coworker, a friend, maybe a stranger, miraculously, they turn to God. After just one year, there are now two Christians where once there was one. In year two, 
both of us go out and do this again. Then, at the end of two years, four people know the Lord. It turns out that this process works exponentially. After four years, there are 16 people. Five years, 32 people. It only takes 10 years to reach a thousand people. And that, my friends, is how the gospel, how Christianity spreads. Still, we push back against this idea. One alternative that I've heard a lot of in researching this story is, what if I just train my kids up to share the gospel? Instead of just one of me evangelizing, my whole family will. Well, sure, go for it, but mathematically, that doesn't really work out. Because kids don't come out of the womb ready to share the gospel. They've got to learn to talk, for one thing. Not only that, we can't control whether or not our kids are going to follow the same religion we do. But let's suppose that you have a kid, and your kid follows Jesus at an early age. Let's assume that it takes 15 years for a kid to get to the age when they can effectively share the gospel with another human being. So, your kid shares the good news, and by the grace of God, there are two people saved at the end of 15 years. Now, let's compare that with our exponential model. In just 15 years of sharing the gospel once a year until someone truly repents, 32,768 people could have come to the Lord. 32,768. By the time my kid is old enough to share it once. By just the pure numbers, which sounds more effective? And what if we did this in a Muslim setting? Then every time someone came to Christ, one more Christian would be added, and you could subtract one from the total number of Muslims. See that? If we're really concerned about the numbers as we say we are, we should be evangelizing to Muslims, not trying to have more babies than them. However, many of us are afraid, and tied up inside of the solution of having more babies is a racial bias. We may, under the surface, see this as a way of sustaining our race instead of furthering the gospel. It's cozier to stay in our huddle, to talk to people who look and sound like us, who celebrate the same holidays as us, to make more of us and hope the kids do the legacy building. In reality, if we really believe the Bible, a Bible verse that definitely still applies, we are to make disciples of who? All nations. Because the hope we have in Christ is not defined by our race, ethnicity, gender, politics, skin color, any of that. The gospel is meant to be taken to every tribe and tongue. What would it mean for the modern church if we stopped pushing babies and started encouraging growth by reaching Muslims and Buddhists and atheists too? Instead of cowering inside of our huddle, we could take this thing to the streets, to the world. And it really comes down to some simple math. 
Special thanks to the fine folks at my church who helped out by telling me what they're afraid of. Thanks guys for always letting me harass you on Sunday mornings. And thanks to Anna and Kevin for their help with the math. I'm also indebted to Nick Starin for being my sounding board. Our voice actor today was my friend Mike Demetrius. Special thanks to Roy, Roger, and Rose Browning for their help with the recent ad campaign. Their company is JMC Brands out of Fairlawn, Ohio. If you like this show, please subscribe and leave us a review on your podcasting app. You can look for us on social media and consider donating a few dollars to help out. Visit the website at trucepodcast.com for bonus info and to learn more about my films Bringing Up Bobby and Between the Walls and my novel Cradle Robber. Please tell a friend about the show. Otherwise, I'll have to have a lot of babies to keep this audience growing. I'm Chris Darren, and this is Truce.